you know, I'm sort of a geek at heart, which is probably part of the reason why my dad was scared about me when I was young. And I was saying, I want to be a writer when I grow up. He was sort of thinking I was going to be a geeky writer. And so uh, there was an element for me that wanted to sort of get out of my own head and find something in the bookstore. I, I, but I thought it was a business thing I was looking for. And, and as it turns out, it was more a, a, a point of view on psychology and understanding people. And, you know, the, to cut to the chase on that one, you know, I, I created this peak model. We used it in the company. It worked really well. We tripled in size between 2001 and 2006. And then I decided to write the book. And um, 2007, the book came out and became a bestseller. So it was my third book. And, and that's actually, frankly, when I started saying, gosh, I'm not sure I want to run this company anymore. I like writing books. I like being the geek to go out and do the research. And then I, I actually like going out and giving speeches as well. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a passion for hospitality, writing, and business fueled Chip Conley to start and eventually sell the global boutique hotel group Joie de Vrie, only to find himself as the modern elder at a crazy high-growth startup called Airbnb and rediscover what it was he was always meant to do. And before we get into today's show, I want to quickly thank you for taking the time to listen. I still can't believe that people listen to this show, and many of you consume it the second it's released. I love the texts and emails demanding more episodes, and as long as you are listening and telling me these stories have value, I will keep doing them. And now, a super quick message from our sponsor. This episode of Baby Got Backstory is sponsored by Wild Story. Wait a second. I bet you're saying, isn't that your company? It is, and without the generous support of WildStory, this show would not be possible. Brands all across the world are discovering that their overall strategic and verbal approach, also known as their brand story, is what glues them together and drives who and what they really are. So, if there are people who would benefit from your work who aren't engaging with you, or maybe there's a change you seek to make in your culture, but it's just not happening, or if you want to change minds so that you can change the world, then get in touch with us, the team behind Wild Story. We can help. A musician must make music. An artist must paint. A poet must write if he is to be ultimately at peace with himself. What a man can be, he must be. This need we call self-actualization. It refers to man's desire for self-fulfillment namely to the tendency for him to become actually in what he is potentially, to become everything one is capable of becoming. Have you ever read a quote that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Something that resonates so true that you want to scream out, yes, yes, I've been feeling that, but I have never heard it articulated the right way just until this moment. When I read this quote for the first time and every time since, that is my reaction. It so eloquently states my own worldview and how I view brands. What a brand can be, it must be. That quote was written by Abraham Maslow, quite possibly the most recognized and quoted psychologist of business. And the foundation of Maslow's theory lies in the hierarchy of needs pyramid, with that self-actualization being right at the top. And truth be told, I had always dismissed Maslow's hierarchy of needs whenever it came up. I assumed, wrongly, that because it was so commonplace that it was old, run-of-the-mill stuff, not worth my attention like all the new theories in business books du jour. But there it was. And I didn't read it in one of Maslow's books or one of the hundreds of marketing and branding theory books that line my walls that all have an example of Maslow's pyramid in them someplace. I read it in a book called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow written by today's guest, Chip Conley. And I don't even know where I got it. 
I don't know about you, but I have massive book anxiety. I get so many books and buy so many books, curse you Amazon one click, that I have a stack of them on a table in my office, most of which I have come to peace with the fact that I will never, ever read. But for some reason, I grabbed Peak, and I opened a page, started reading, and it connected. And I started to employ the methodologies I learned in my own business and my own branding methodologies. But I was even more intrigued by the author. Who was this guy? After doing a little bit of research on Chip Conley, I immediately knew I had to have him as a guest on this podcast. At 52, after selling the cool and rebel hotel brand he had started at the age of 26, he could have retired. By today's standards, he should have retired. But the young founders of Airbnb came calling, and he served as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy for four years, while also being CEO Brian Chesky's mentor. And he continues today as a strategic advisor to Airbnb's leadership. Chip Conley is a New York Times bestselling author whose manifesto on ageism, wisdom at work, the making of a modern elder, is inspired by his experience of being both a mentor and an intern in his 50s. And Chip Conley has so much to offer that I'm not going to waste any more time. Here's Chip Conley. Chip, uh, you've built a global hospitality brand in Joy DeVries. Uh, you were an early contributor to Airbnb as the head of global hospitality and strategy for four years, and you continue to be a strategic advisor to that uh, business that we all know so well today. Uh, and you're continuing to evolve and push with your current project, the Modern Elder Academy. And I definitely want to get into what that means to be a modern elder. We'll talk about that later in the show. You know, I was first introduced to you when I read your book, uh, Peak, uh, how how great companies get their mojo from Maslow, which was like a, this like brain expander for me. Like it was like, <laughs> like it blew my mind, you know, as I was, I'd always discounted Maslow uh, as old info, which I think is really sort of uh, ironic given what we're talking about with modern elders and things like that in a little bit. Uh, you know, I always thought it was something uh, dated and old, but of course you show us how wrong that is uh, and you built your own transformational pyramid on top of his. Uh, but for now, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, were you always into... Abram Maslow as a kid, uh, Abram, Abraham, Abraham Maslow as a kid. I mean, did you know you were going to be a boutique hotelier, uh, a brand builder? I mean, was, was this how you had started as a as a young child? No, as a young child, I, I think I wanted to be a fireman. I, I, I mean, I I don't know that as a kid, I thought psychology. You know, Abe Maslow was a psychologist. I don't think I thought psychology was a cool thing to to go into. It sort of felt like, oh, you do that if, if you've got trouble. So. What was interesting to me, though, in my in my early adulthood, it was the idea that companies are just full of humans. Like the most neglected fact in business is that we're all human. So the operating system for any company should have some element of humanism, or at least understanding humans, having almost like a uh, some kind of operating manual for humans at its core. And yet, when I would uh, when I went to Stanford Business School, or when I would go to a leadership training, you know, a lot of it didn't really feel like it actually tapped into human motivation or inspiration. So uh, I started my company, Joie de Vivre, when I was 26. It became the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S., uh, all based in California. Uh, we were headquartered in San Francisco, but all 52 of our boutique hotels at that time were in, in the state of California. And, you know, if you call your company, uh, an emotion, joy, joie de vivre, meaning joy of life, uh, in some ways you are opening yourself up to the idea that psychology is going to have an influence on how you create, how you develop that company. And so it's not surprising that ultimately Abe Maslow is somebody I turned to at the bottom of the dot-com bust. Yeah. Did you have a lot of psychologists as role models or people that you were looking up to when you were younger? I mean, how, what was your experience with that as you were growing up? And, and where did you grow up? What was, what was that like? I grew up in Southern California in a place called Long Beach. And uh, no, I can't say that psychologists had much to do with my upbringing other than when I said to my father at age 12 that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, he said that he, was, he could send me to therapy. <laughs> um, so I, my impression of, of therapy was like it was a, not a good thing. And so 
truly, I did not plan to be a writer after that. And the fact that I ultimately have now written five books is really because I became a successful entrepreneur, which is what I focused on. But no, I didn't, I didn't have much of a framework for understanding psychology. I only took one psychology class at Stanford University as an undergrad. And my professor Zimbardo was you know, well-known in, in Stanford uh, as the guy who created the Stanford Prison Experiment, which basically showed uh, using psychology that people can just become awful if you create the right conditions for them to become awful. Um, so I, I, I can't say that psychology had a, a fundamental impact on me until I actually did go into therapy in my mid-20s, early to mid-20s. And um, I saw some great results myself. And I just understanding myself, having sort of a consciousness of who I was and what my intention in life was, was a really helpful thing for me. It ultimately led me starting to starting my boutique hotel company at age 26. Yeah. And I, I want to get there and, and talk about that a little bit, but uh, let's go back to your dad a little bit. So you mentioned uh, he gave you some tough love, we'll call it that, uh, mm-hmm. in, in about writing. What did he do and what, you know, what was uh, his vision for you uh, as, as you were growing up? I love it. Baby does have backstory, doesn't he? <laughs> I just keep wanting to go back. You know, and you want to keep going back to my childhood. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like a psychologist myself, right? Uh, you are. It's actually sort of interesting. I, it's qu- quite the opposite of most podcasts. So I appreciate it. Hats off to you. So I was the firstborn of three kids, two sisters. I have the exact same name as my father. So I'm a junior, St- Stephen Townsend Conley Jr., chip off the old block. So my name was really a reference point to the fact that I was uh, a second. I grew up in the same area, same neighborhood that my dad grew up in. I went to the same high school he went to. I, uh, he was my baseball coach. I was the star pitcher. He was my Boy Scout master in the Boy Scouts. He had been an Eagle Scout. I became an Eagle Scout. Uh, when I went to the same high school he did, I was a swimmer and a water polo player, just like he was. I got recruited play water polo at Stanford, Stanford, which is where he went to school. I joined a different fraternity than he was in. But frankly, by the time I was 20 years old, I was a carbon copy of my father. And I didn't really want to be. And so my backstory was, here's this kid who's a little awkward socially, became very, I became very, uh, very, very extroverted and very comfortable in being social in my teen years. But it was really, I had to work at it. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I sort of felt lost. Like, who the hell am I? Am I just, you know, the, in my dad's words, the better version of, of my dad, because he wanted me to be a better version of him. What was he doing for work? What was his? He was, yeah, so he was a, um, he was a, he worked in sort of traditional business, he worked for big companies, McDonald, Douglas, and Union Bank. And so he was just sort of like a business executive, mid to higher level business executive, but he didn't like it. And, and frankly, I saw his frustration with it, which is part of the reason I wanted to become an entrepreneur because I could see my dad didn't like working for large companies. And when I was in Stanford Business School was the, the period of time when my father um, decided to start his own company, uh, a, a real estate investment company, a uh, commercial real estate investment company. And so at, at the time when I was just considering becoming an entrepreneur myself, my dad was doing the same, uh, Twenty. Two, twenty-three years older than me. But you know, when when that was happening, and I want to set the stage a little bit because now the word entrepreneur is super cool, and everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, and it has this like, you know, it's it's really neat to be an entrepreneur. But you know, it, when you started, it probably wasn't so much so that way. Am I am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, back then it was sort of considered to be if you if you if you failed in your business school class <laughs> and you and you couldn't get a job out of Stanford Business School. Maybe you'd go start something. Now there were uh, there are people who felt who were at a different profile than that as well. But yeah, I don't think it was the coolest thing. And again, this was back in 1984. I was graduating from Stanford Business School, and I think entrepreneurs were also seen as sort of um, misfits. There was an element that they just couldn't fit into the normal, the normal kind of establishment. And um, and that was a little bit true of me. Um, I think the thing that was crying out inside of me was I just wanted to be creative. And I had shut down the possibility of creativity through writing or maybe even painting or, or drawing as a career. And so I, I really wanted to tap into my creativity 
through business and entrepreneurship felt like uh, I could do that. And so you graduate from Stanford Business School and you look around and and was the hotel business the first business you went into or did you have a, a different business? No. That, you know? So it's funny. I went to work between my first and second year of Stanford Business School um, with Morgan Stanley in New York. I was focused on commercial real estate. So I was working in Morgan Stanley's uh, real estate division and um, doing big transactions. It was actually a pretty highbrow and, and big-time job for a guy who was you know, 22 years old in between first and second year of business school. And they wanted me to come back and work there long-term. And I just like, you know what? I want to be an entrepreneur when I grow up. So working for Morgan Stanley doesn't really give me that path. So instead, and I got a bunch of other job offers, but I ended up taking the job out of business school that paid me $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year, working for a small maverick, pretty creative real estate development company in San Francisco. And I did that because, uh, not because I thought, you know, it was, it was the smart thing when it, when it came to my salary, but it would, they were going to give me a partnership in the company w- within a year if I did well. And I felt like, you know, if I was going to go start my own thing in the future, learning from someone who's already doing it was probably the fastest way for me to learn. And that's what happened in the two and a half years that I was there. I really quickly learned the commercial real estate development business in San Francisco. <clears throat> During that time, we were looking at uh, doing a, a hotel in a particular neighborhood where we had a lot of real estate. And it was a sort of an unusual neighborhood to have a hotel. We did not move forward with the hotel, but it gave me the ability to do a feasibility study on a hotel. And that opened the door for me to understand the hotel business, which I loved immediately because I said, wow, if you make people happy, you do well. So, you know, if in, in essence, if you create some joie de vivre, some joy of life for people, you're going to have a success, successful company. Also at that time in the mid-1980s, or, or 1986 really, the boutique hotel business was just getting off the ground in the United States. And Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton had started their companies. So without any background in hotels, on my 26th birthday, I finished a business plan to create joie de vivre hotels a hotel dedicated to joy and creating joy. And I found a, a motel in the Tenderloin um, that was a pay-by-the-hour motel where a lot of joy had been had <laughs> on an hourly rate basis. And uh, I figured out how to buy it uh, cheap and um, and frankly bought it even before I told my, my boss that I was buying it. And I was buying it, uh, I had to go out and raise uh, $1.1 million to buy it. So it was really cheap. I mean, like really cheap compared to what things are cost today in San Francisco. Yeah, but that seemed like a lot of money to you at the time. I have to imagine a lot you of didn't money. have one million in your pocket. I'm, yeah, I, you know, you I'm, know. I'm from middle to slightly upper middle class family, so we didn't have a ton of money. So I had to go out and raise the money. And yeah, and then I said to my boss, listen, I bought this motel in the Tenderloin. He looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? We're not going to go into the hotel business. And I said, okay, I thought that was going to be your answer. So I, that's why I bought it <laughs> because I, did, I didn't come to you to buy it. And I, I'm going to like over the next few months sort of phase out here and focus on that. And I'm going to get a big salary of $2,000 a month in that company that I'm going to pay myself, which is you know barely more than you're paying me now at this point now. So I, 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 I went on that path and it was... You know, I think my friends, a lot of my friends looked at me like, you're stupid. you're an idiot to go work for that real estate developer in the first place. You know, you, you turned down an $85,000 job for a $24,000 job. What are you doing? And then now you're going to go buy a Tenderloin motel, pay by the hour motel, and turn it into a company, that, a name that nobody can pronounce, Joie de Vivre. And, and like, you know, wow, I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was perceived as having a lot of promise because Seth Godin and I were the youngest people in, in our business school class. And, you know, because we, were, we got in at a very young age, so somehow we were perceived as having a lot of potential. But by age 26, everybody was saying, well, the potential isn't worth much. But as it turns out, I have sort of a history of proving people wrong and doing something that seems a little odd at first, but it turns out it's ahead of a trend. <laughs> and as you get older, it's easier to say, ha, I told you so. Well, but at, now, at 26, yeah. at 26, like how did you have the confidence to, to, to persevere and just know like, hey, like, because you, you mentioned it, like, you know, boutique hotels are just kind of happening. You know, now we walk and we know about Kimpton and Schrager hotels and everyone's, you know, everyone's got all the standard and all this stuff. There's, there's hotels everywhere that are boutique and now we actually crave it uh, all the way, you know, going so far to as an extreme as Airbnb, where we want to have this complete 
completely different experience. Mm -hmm. But like, like then it wasn't so obvious, you know, it's easy to look back and say, aha, but how are you so sure about this? So it's interesting. It's a funny question um, because I was living in a small one bedroom apartment on Telegraph Hill in San Francisco. And I had, I had gone to Stanford undergrad, gone to Stanford business school. So a lot of people come back through the Bay area, even if they don't live there, because that's where their alma, alma mater is. And so instead of people staying in hotels, everybody stayed on my couch in my living room. So I had the opportunity of giving basically a one-on-one focus group for every person who was staying in my, in my, in my, you know, this is before couch surfing existed as a company, certainly way before Airbnb. And so I, what I kept hearing was that the hotels in San Francisco were expensive and boring. And, and so that's what I've looked at is like, okay, do a two by two uh, graph or, you know, two by two chart, expensive versus not expensive. And then boring versus not boring. And when I charted all of the hotels in San Francisco, what I saw is there are a lot of expensive, boring hotels. There's some inexpensive, boring hotels. There's some expensive, not boring hotels, but not many of those. And there's no inexpensive and not boring hotels. In essence, affordable and fun. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to go do that. And that's how it all started. That's so awesome, you know, and coming from a branding background, I mean, that's, that's, that's an exercise that people pay a lot of money for, yeah, right? exactly. like for, for, for you to do that, like, you know, I'm guessing that came out Stanford, of, of Stanford business, Stanford business school, school. But, so, I mean, I, exactly. That's one of the few things I learned yeah. at Stanford. So yes. <laughs> but also joie de vivre. Am I, am I saying that right? Joie de vivre. Just say vivre. Vivre, right. vivre, okay, yeah, joie yeah. de vivre. Like, 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 so you're, you're absolutely right. It's a tough name to say. It's a little like, um, threatening. You know, I, as I'm preparing for this podcast, I keep looking at it. I'm like, am I saying it right? Yeah. I don't even know how to say it. I can imagine being a, a hotel guest, like the first time it's a little intimidating. Like, how did you come up with that name and, and know that that was the right name? Like that, that is a strong brand, but even at the time, yeah. like, you know, I probably would advise you against it. Oh, that, right? so like, many people you know, advise me against it. I mean, I, so I, I felt strongly that it's really strong strange. There are very few companies whose mission statement is also in the brand name. I mean, think about it. Banana Republic, <laughs> probably not. No, um, no. So you, you, know, this, you think about all the different uh, names out there. There aren't too many. So I just thought the idea of what is it, what's our mission statement? Now, I was weird, a weird kid. You know, I was from Southern California. And instead of learning Spanish growing up, which is what most of my friends learned, I learned French. And I always appreciated the phrase joie de vivre, which means joy of life. Um, and it speaks to not a literal translation. It's almost like a je ne sais quoi, sort of like a, that kind of little French thing that you know people uh, appreciate about some little alleyway in the back streets of Paris where you see a little cafe and a boutique. And there's this sort of this just sort of moment where you like feel like, wow, this is just how life is meant to be. So I, I like the idea that the mission statement of the company is going to be in the name. I didn't mind introducing Joie de Vivre as a concept to the US. I felt like it was a little risky, but boutique hotels generally take risks. And so I felt like it was worth doing. But, you know, it, 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 my first hotel <laughs> was, was not some upscale French hotel. It was, you know, a broken down motel in the, the Tenderloin of San Francisco, which is a, a tough neighborhood. So, yeah, but it, it, it worked. It was sure, sure did. So you opened up your your first hotel, which was a risk. And uh, from day one, was it an instant success? No, I mean it was. Uh, you know, basically, I had to kick out uh, Vinny and his girls, um, the pimp and his prostitutes, who had been the the primary corporate account. And in in return, I had to start figuring out who's who wants to stay here. Now, I did have a little bit. Here, here's the good news: I had a little bit of help in that. In that, there's a guy named. Oh my gosh. Bill Graham. And Bill Graham was a famous concert promoter in San Francisco. And uh, very, very famous for like promoting the dead yeah, and, and a lot of exactly, stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, my real estate developer partner out of business school was trying to do a joint venture to build something called the Shoreline Amphitheater down in the Palo Alto Mental Park area, uh, Mountain View area. We didn't do the deal, but it allowed me to get to know Bill Graham. And what Bill Graham said to me is like, hey, you guys need to build a hotel in San Francisco that orient- is oriented toward musicians because there's not like a really great place for them to stay. So now I had a hotel and I had a hotel that had a huge parking lot and musicians when they're traveling often have a tour bus 
and or maybe more than one and they need parking like they want they like parking nearby and so i decided that the phoenix which is the name i called the hotel i changed the name would be great uh as a rock and roll hotel uh for and a crossroads for creative people and that's what it became and I imagine that that was just an incredible experience having all the musical acts and creatives coming through your your place, you know, yeah. the, your home effectively uh, that you're you're treating people. And so for, from right away, was was it just gaining traction? And, no, and, and it, it actually didn't through? gain traction very quickly. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, it was it was all good, and you know, to say that, but like, what, how are you going to get these people there? So here is the story on that. So there's a backstory. So the backstory there is this: I thought. I mean, I just use my MBA brain for a moment and say, okay, who are the people who booked the bands when they're coming to town? And there's always bands coming to town. So it's, well, it's probably the venue. If they're going to play at Slim's or the Fillmore or the Great American Music Hall, it's the venue. And so whoever's booking the venues, booking the bands, and maybe they can make recommendations. So I went out to them and that was helpful a little bit. We got a little bit of business from that, not a lot. Secondly, I learned, okay, well, there's these travel agents and the travel agents book, like there's specialized travel agents who only focus on musician or entertainment travel. So I started marketing to them, but they were a little cautious because, you know, even if they had a tight budget, we were this place they'd never heard of in a tough neighborhood. And yes, I seemed like a nice kid, but I was 26 years old and like, yeah, so yes, one out of every 10 travel agents would try us, but that, that didn't work too much either. Then I went out to the, the, what I thought were like the, okay, maybe it's the agents who are like the agents for the band. Maybe they make those decisions. Nope. Ultimately, I fa- figured out that the people who make the decision 90% of the time was the tour manager. So now a tour manager, when a band's on the road for six months or four months, is usually five years older than the band, almost always a man, a guy. And so he's got a a band of four guys, maybe two roadies, uh, or, or, you know, if it's a bigger band, you know, a lot more people than that. But the job of the tour manager is just to make sure that the groupies don't hijack a band member and that nobody has an overdose. And so in some ways, being a tour manager is a really stressful job. So what I started to think about is, well, what, what is it that the tour manager would want that nobody's providing them that would that they could then tell their friends about. Now this is way before there were, you know, cellular phones or 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 any kind of in fact it was way before com- like computers. This is like this is when the only way you communicated with people was by a regular rotary phone. And so what I did was I took one of the 44 rooms at the Phoenix and I turned it into a massage studio. And I hired a, a massage therapist and we we basically had a service that we gave to our guests. But what we did we did this for was because when the tour managers would come with their band, as long as they were giving us 10 room nights, which would be like five rooms times two nights, the tour manager would get a free massage. And I tell you what, that hit the jackpot because these tour managers were so stressed out. I'd get a call three days before the tour manager was in San Francisco. They were like in Denver. It's like, I can't wait to get to your place because I just so desperately need a massage. And so by the time they got to San Francisco, they were waiting for the massage. Then they would go and tell all their friends who are other tour managers. And the next thing I knew, I had all these tour managers booking with us directly, not even using a travel agent usually. And the Phoenix, and then, then some articles got written about, you know, Linda Ronstadt taking over the whole hotel and Nirvana and Pearl Jam, you know, taking the place for a New Year's Eve party and, and David Bowie coming there and Sinead O'Connor having her first U.S. tour and bring her baby there. And, you know, it just, it, we got a ton of press and that's when, from that point forward, it was, you know, it was, we were, we were successful. Yeah. And, and that's so insightful about really getting into the mind of your customer, you know, and, and it goes, you know, we'll be jumping in a little bit to, to peak in the, the transformational pyramid, but, you know, after you hit their base needs and their belonging, really that, you know, identity refreshment, as you like to call it. I mean, we call it like, how do you make the customer the hero in their own story when they're using their, you know, your brand? And so really helping those, those tour managers, you know, self-actualize and feel like a hero as they get their massage and, and feel important and, and like they deserve it, you know, kind of. Well, and, and, and this speaks um, or to, to just the peak uh, pyramid. So uh, the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs applied to employees, customers, and investors. So the customer pyramid was like, okay, Maslow has five levels of the pyramid. 
from physiological needs at the base up to self-actualization, I'd said, okay, well, let's turn that into just three levels. There's sort of three key themes in life, survival at the base of the pyramid, success in the middle, and transformation or transform at the top. So if you applied that three-level transformation pyramid to customers, it would be the survival need is having their expectations met. The, the, the success need is having their desires met. And the transformation need is the thing that you did for a customer that they didn't even know they wanted is meeting their unrecognized needs. This is Apple did this exceptionally well. It's part of the reason why Steve Jobs didn't like focus groups because focus groups only got them as far as the desires level, the second level. The unrecognized needs piece required understanding your customer maybe better than, than they understood themselves. So the fact that we actually offered massage as a way to sort of build a, a rapport with the decision makers of where someone's going to stay was an unrecognized need of the tour manager. And it actually is a great example of, wow, if you do that and you do the other things below it on the pyramid well, you differentiate yourself. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, and it's funny, I was, uh, I was at WeWork, you know, recently, and they met an unrecognized need for me that I didn't know I had. But for me, whenever I'm in a, a co-working space, dishes are a huge area of stress, right? Like, like there's like, you get emails from like the community manager that are like, Hey, who's not doing their dishes or who left mm. all the dishes in the sink? Or, you know, d- you know, we're not here to clean up after you like all this stuff. And it's long, that's long been the model. Mm-hmm. When I go in, when I, when I go into WeWork, they have someone there with just tubs right by the sink and you put your dishes in, which everyone can do. Like, you know, that's no big deal because, you know, everyone's taking them to the sink anyways. They're just setting them in the sink right. um, and, and creating all this stress. And then they have someone that does it. And I can't tell you like this unrecognized need like how much it like that means to me and how much i didn't even realize mm-hmm. stress was built into that component and i'm like i'm a raving fan here i am talking about we work right yeah there you go so i mean so i think that model uh for your listeners the idea that um you could take uh the maslow pyramid and and distill it down to survival succeed transform and know that if you can actually address the the first two levels well, the real differentiation is at that third level. You could apply that to any any kind of customer. Yeah. And so when did you, I mean, were you at the at the Phoenix? Is this where you yep. got involved and in, in interested in Maslow? That's when you first figured it well, out? No, actually, when I got interested in Maslow was when my company had grown to being the biggest hotel, independent hotelier in the Bay Area. At that point, we had 21 hotels and the dot-com bust happened. So this is about 15 years into my company history. Doc, back, you know, the dot-com boom was amazing. We, we grew, grew us into the biggest hotelier in the Bay Area. And then all of a sudden we had a bust. And I ended up in a local bookstore that no longer exists, the Borders Bookstore in Union Square in San Francisco that has been disrupted by Amazon uh, now. But back then it did exist in 2002. And I went there looking for a, a business book, thinking like, oh, geez, I only have four months left of cash. How are we ever going to survive this? I had 1,000 employees at that point. And I started in the business section of the bookstore and then realized quite quickly that I really needed more than more than a business book. So I went to the self-help section of the bookstore. And that's where I got reacquainted with psychology and the psychologist Abe Maslow and his books. And so I sat down in the aisles at Borders and started reading a couple of his books. And then was told by the manager that I can't read for two hours in the, on the floor. And I got to, I've got to buy the books. And I did. And over the next couple of months after reading his books, I said, it's interesting. Maslow basically created a pyramid of what, what the needs are, the basic needs and the higher needs of, of people. But, you know, frankly, our employees, our customers, and our investors are all people as well. Maybe there's an employee hierarchy of needs, et cetera. And, and so that was something I, I – it came out of necessity um, at a time when we really um, were struggling. Yeah. So like, 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 let's go back to that. So yeah, the, 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 the dot com, uh, bust happens. You're like freaking out. You've got a thousand employees, 20 some locations. Uh, you're, you're worried about making payroll. I'm sure that the perceived pain of, you know, 20 some hotels going under is enormous. And you go to borders and start reading books. Yeah. I know. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, were you like, were you freaking out at that point? I was a geek, you know, I'm sort of a geek at heart, which is probably part of the reason why my dad was scared about me when I was young. And I was saying, I want to be a writer when I grew up. He was sort of thinking I was going to be a geeky writer. And so there was an element for me that wanted to sort of get out of my own head and find something in the bookstore. I, I, but I thought it was a business thing I was looking for. And 
And as it turns out, it was more a, a, a point of view on psychology and understanding people. And you know, the, to cut to the chase on that one, you know, I I created this peak model. We used it in the company. It worked really well. We tripled in size between 2001 and 2006. And then I decided to write the book. And um, 2007, the book came out and became a bestseller. So it was my third book. And, and that's actually, frankly, when I started saying, gosh, I'm not sure I want to run this company anymore. <laughs> I like writing books. I like being the geek um, to go out and do the research. And then I, I actually like going out and giving speeches as well. Yeah. And, you know, I do want to step back just a second. I mean, you went from, you know, jumped from the Phoenix, which was just this cool boutique hotel, you know, servicing the bands coming through town in the Tenderloin, all the way to 20 some locations. How did that happen? You know, it, it, it happened by, uh, we studied Southwest Airlines and I was really fascinated that Southwest was this travel brand, but had a real sort of democratic approach to hospitality. And, you know, it was just an organization that where it felt like fun was and, and, and Joie de Vivre was built into how the flight attendants did their jobs, et cetera. So in studying Southwest, they really helped me to understand that there's this uh, service profit chain. And if you, if you create a great culture, it leads to happy employees, which leads to happy customers, which leads to market share growth and profitability. And then you invest back in the culture based upon that profitability. And that sort of virtuous circle is what I created uh, in Joie de Vivre. And um, because um, the hotels were very personalized, each one was its own brand. 52 boutique hotels, everyone with its own name and brand. We did them all locally, you know, in, in, in initially for the first 17 years, all in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, which allowed us to really understand the feel of each of the hotels quite well. And, I, you know, we, what that did was create, um, the, between the culture that we had in our company, which was positive, and the really soulful hotels we were creating, um, we just did very well. And that's what led to the company growing as much as did. And then the tide rose during the dot-com boom, which also helped us. So when the dot-com bust happened, it was like a big bucket of cold water being thrown on me because I'd had pretty much 15 years of pretty successful growth. Other than dealing with uh, the uh, San Francisco earthquake in 1989 and then a, a small recession in the early 90s, which didn't affect the Bay Area all that much. Um, I had just seen, you know, only good times. So, you know, it was good for me to get a taste of the bad times with that dot-com bust. Yeah, so up to that point, you thought you were a pretty big deal, huh? <laughs> I, yes, I guess. So. You know, we, what we all know is we learn our, some of our best lessons, frankly, in our most difficult times. For sure. And, you know, as a brand storyteller, I just, I love how you ap approach Joy de Vries, like by giving it its own, each hotel its own personality and identity. Like, how, how did you come to this idea? Because the norm, right, is to make everything the same, to make it scalable, to make it repeatable. And you went out and you said, look, we're going to give each one its own brand, its own identity. So like, like, how do you go about implementing an idea like that and allow each hotel to have its own identity and personality while still feeling like it's a greater part of the Joie de Vivre brand? Well, the thing that we saw in the early days of trying to create that first hotel, the Phoenix, was that there was we had a really hard time in our first meeting. Uh, I'm, I'm a 26-year-old ho old hotelier at that point who's never created a hotel, surrounded by a bunch of people in the room who had never created a hotel either. And we had all very different ideas about what it took to create a hotel. So I came, to, I said for the second meeting, bring a magazine that defines the personality of the hotel. And I don't know why I said that other than I had a personal idea that Rolling Stone magazine was going to be sort of our touchstone, but I didn't tell anybody that. And I said, just bring a magazine that defines the hotel in terms of its personality. And of the seven people who came to the meeting, five of the seven brought Rolling Stone magazine. So then we looked through the magazine and said, so we're like, what's the, what's the personality of this magazine? If there are five adjectives, we came up with five, which are funky, irreverent, adventurous, cooling at heart. And so that led to our very proprietary and sort of award-winning approach to creating boutique hotels, which was each time we uh, had a hotel, we'd imagine a magazine that, or, or two, a hybrid of two, that defined the magazine, that, that would give us five adjectives. Then we'd use those five adjectives in everything from the naming of the hotel, the kind of restaurant we'd create, the kind of staff we hired, the kind of services we offered, uh, the kind of restaurant you know, that opened up. All of those things would in, be influenced by those five adjectives. And, and each hotel ended up being quite, becoming quite different because each had a different personality. And ultimately, when we got big enough 
we all I created a character on our website called Yvette, the hotel matchmaker. And you could put in, you know, we'd ask you five questions and it would help us understand the five adjectives that described you. Because what we learned over time was that the people who fell in love with a hotel saw the five adjectives as almost a mirror for their aspirations. So at the Phoenix, that means you would, if you thought of yourself as sort of funky, irreverent, and adventurous, you'd love the Phoenix. And if you stayed there for three days, you'd check out feeling like those words described you uh, very well. And so we were, I, I came to realize we were not in the boutique hotel business, but we were in the identity refreshment business. Oh, that, I love that so much. And so what would that equivalent be today with the uh, advent of magazines being no longer as, as popular? What do you think that, yeah, that would, I think, how, I how do you think, make that relevant? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I think the reason it worked with magazines back then was magazines were niche oriented and lifestyle oriented. Um, I think today you could use any product. You could say, okay, if it's a, if it was a car, what car would it would define it? Because ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether it's the magazine or the car. It's the five adjectives that come from that, and that's why some of the more interesting hotels we created were hotels where it was two magazines as a hybrid. Like there's a hotel in San Francisco called the Hotel Vitali, and it was real simple meets Dwell magazine. And so the five adjectives were modern, urbane fresh, natural, and nurturing. And those, you know, that set of five adjectives only defined that singular hotel. And so, yeah, so I think the hybrid helped as well. But I don't think, you know, I don't think it has to be just magazines. You could do it. I, we, we created one hotel that was the love child of Harrison Ford and Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so you, you did that, you built up, you know, a hotel and, and, you know, empire, so to speak, uh, you redefined uh, a Maslow's uh, pyramid and simplified it. Um, do you have anything more you want to talk about around peak before we kind of move on to your the next stage where, where you left the hotel business? Uh, no, I think I mean I, that was uh, it was it was it was great until it wasn't in terms of my, <laughs> my. So I can tell you about that if you want me to tell you about that and that what led me to leaving the the hotel business. That'd be great. Please do. Yeah. So I. Um, you know, one of the things that's true of the the, the peak pyramid for employees is that uh, the three three levels of the employee pyramid, the, the base level is money, and then the middle level is recognition, and the top level is meaning. And that equates to, at the base level of the pyramid's job, middle level's career, top of the pyramid's calling. So I had a calling for 22 years as the CEO of this company uh, and founder of Joie de Vivre. And then I had a flatline experience. I was giving a speech in St. Louis. I was on, I had a broken ankle. I was on, I had a, a septic leg. I was on antibiotics that I probably was allergic to. And that experience of going flatline really woke me up. It was right at the start of the Great Recession, August of 2018. And it was, I'm sorry, August 2008. And I just felt this need to like get the hell out of Dodge in terms of, no longer run this company. Now that was a terrible feeling because I'd never created the company with any idea that you know, I'd ever sell it. So it wasn't just a, a hard thing based upon my plans. I like the structure of the company, the organizational structure, the way it was, the way the ownership worked, everything was not set up to be sold. And I was trying, I was going to have to do this in the bottom of the recession. So, but I, but I did, I mean, I, what was, what was a calling had become a job almost overnight. It sort of jumped over the career level uh, on, that, on that peak pyramid. And so over the next two years, I went through the process very privately and very quietly uh, trying to sell my boutique hotel management company and brand at the bottom of the market. Sold it to, to John Pritzker, uh, whose father started Hyatt. And I kept the real estate. I kept owning a lot of the hotels with partners. So I didn't have to, have to sell the real estate, which was a good thing. And long story short is it gave me the get out of jail free card to start imagining what I wanted to do next. And uh, I didn't really know at that point. I was 50 years old and I was like, okay, what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> and, and so you start uh, advising and eventually you go to Airbnb, which, you know, I've been reading your book, Modern Elder, and I get a sense it was a little awkward, right? Like, I mean, great group of people, but like you're 50 something years old and you're, you go into a company where everyone's like, and they're like mid twenties, uh, you know, maybe 30, right? Everyone's yeah. fairly young. Yes. So it was, um, I, you know, it was interesting. I was approached by, by Brian Chesky, the, the co-founder and CEO. He was 31. I was 52. He 
didn't really want to be in the hospitality business, but he realized his little tech company with a great design focus, if it was going to be successful someday, it had to be in the hospitality business, uh, Airbnb. And, and the company at that point was a relatively small company, but it was growing fast. And um, so he said, how would you like to help me democratize hospitality? And that was a great opening line. And um, then I, you know, I just, I joined, but I didn't really join thinking I was joining a tech company. I didn't, it didn't dawn on me that I had never worked in a tech company. I was 52 and I knew something about tech, but not a lot. And so the lingo completely confused me. And I didn't, I frankly felt way out of place. I was also twice the age of the average employee. And um, so at first I wasn't even sure I was in the right place. And then over time I got the hang of it and I started to learn that um, I wasn't there just to sort of like dispense you know, factual knowledge, like how many, how many rooms is a maid clean in an eight hour shift in a hotel? Well, frankly, in the home sharing world, that doesn't matter because most Airbnb hosts don't have a a maid uh, doing an eight hour shift. And so I realized that, you know, the knowledge I had, a lot of it wasn't all that helpful, but the wisdom I had was helpful. And the wisdom often had something to do with humans again. It had to do with understanding humans as a leader or how to develop emotional intelligence or how to create learning and development. You know, how do you create an environment where managers know how to, like 28-year-old managers know how to lead 24-year-old direct reports? And so a lot of my value in the company turned out to be how to build, how to build a great culture, how to build a great brand, how to build a incentivized system based upon understanding human motivation for our super hosts to do a great job of, of their work. And so at the end of the day, it became another exercise in psychology. Yeah. And, and after that, you know, you had, you had a great run and I think you're still involved in advising to the company, but you're, you're no longer full time there. You then came out of that and you coined this, this idea of a modern elder. What, what's a modern elder? Well, the thing was that they had a hard time knowing what to call me. I was not like, um, I wasn't exactly, I was Brian Chesky's mentor in-house but I was also his intern because I was, I was learning as much as I was teaching. And so at some point, Joe Gebbia, one of the co-founders, said, Chip, you're like our in-house modern elder. And I, did, I said, well, what's a modern elder? And he says, well, it's different than the traditional elder. The traditional elder of the past was focused on dispensing wisdom. And you're actually learning as much as you're teaching. So, and so I started to realize that a modern elder is as curious as they are wise. And if you're curious, it allows you to understand what's happening in the world today so that you can take that timeless wisdom you have and apply it to modern day problems. And so um, what I started to realize is that in a world where we're all going to live 10 years longer than our parents probably, and yet power in a digital society is moving 10 years younger, we have a math problem. And the math problem is we are going to have 20 years of additional irrelevancy in midlife because we're going to live longer, but the power is moving to the 30-year-olds. And so that's when I started saying, well, there's these modern elders who are curious and wise and um, better learn how to repurpose themselves in a new environment, as I had to do uh, in a tech company at Airbnb. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing to have this conversation, like, you know, you had a conversation, someone says like, hey, Chip, you're a modern elder, and you kind of have this aha moment. But like, what inspired you to go on like what I would call a modern elder quest you know like you put i can tell you put a lot of thought and time in it a lot of research and you've you've devoted a lot of your life uh, over the last uh year or so on this topic why well i you know i it, it, i love this mark you've helped me to tell the backstory which is i wanted to be a writer when i grew up and funny enough i became a writer became a but i became a writer because i took the path that my father wanted me to take, which was to go out and do something more practical and go out and become a business person. And then I ended up writing, I ended up giving speeches because my business was successful. And then a literary agent approached me at one of my speeches and said, you, you know, dude, have you ever thought about being a writer? And this was long ago. This was 20 years ago. And I said, well, I don't want to become psychotic. Like my dad thought I'd be if I'd be a writer. <laughs> and so by, by, by pursuing the business angle, it allowed me to ultimately become the writer. And so my process of writing five books has been my process of learning and developing wisdom. And so yeah. when I came to this conclusion 
uh, after four years of full-time work at Airbnb and moving into the role I have now for almost two and a half years as a strategic advisor to the founders, I said, you know what? The lesson I've learned from this one is I think there's a way to pair modern elders with young technologists. Uh, and not, that doesn't have to be the only way it's done. But it, you know, m- my story is, hey, I, I had a lot of domain expertise, but a particular a lot, a, a lot of wisdom about humans. And that can be very valuable to a, a, a young company that's growing fast. And so how do we create a world where we recognize that within the ranks of your company or people you could hire, especially if you're a young company with a, with a lot of young dynamic technology energy, you could actually learn a lot by actually bringing these people in, not because they're going to come in and be adult supervision, as people say. That's not what it, what you know young technologists need. They don't need adult supervision, but they do need a little bit of um, experience and uh, unvarnished insight, especially around the human condition and emotional intelligence. And I think that's what more and more more companies need. And I think, frankly, we need to, with five generations in the workplace for the first time. I think we need to create an intergenerational collaboration that, like, like we've never seen before. Oh, and you know, you mentioned you know throughout throughout that that hey, like you know, we really need to understand humans, and I and I read that a lot in your book, and you know, what is the best way for us to understand humans? Like, how do we do that? <laughs> well, that's a hard one to answer because you know, there's so many different parts to it. You know, some for some, it's just intuitive energy, intuitive knowledge. You know, there's something called pattern recognition. And you know, artificial intelligence is about pattern recognition, but human intelligence is about pattern recognition, as is wisdom. Wisdom is another way to describe pattern recognition. And for some of us, pattern recognition around humans allows us to become more emotionally intelligent with time. And unlike our IQ, which is relatively static in a lifetime, EQ can grow as you get older. So if that's the case, then um, just being out and being a human allows you to understand yourself and others better. And that's one way. Another way to understand humans and be better about this is to study psychology or study emotional intelligence. And there's all kinds of workshops on on, on those subjects that people can learn in the context of the workplace. And finally, I think people can just do a better job of understanding themselves. You know, uh, at the core of Daniel Goleman's whole theory around emotional intelligence is self-awareness, the process of learning about yourself. Maybe this goes back to the, the backstory of therapy. Uh, in my early 20s. You know, when you understand yourself better and you can really understand your internal motivations, how you work, how you react to things, et cetera, it allows you to be maybe a little bit better uh, able to understand other people. And so, you know, whether it's through pattern recognition over a long period of time, whether it's through studying, you know, you know psychology and emotional intelligence, or whether it's doing your own self-reflection and self-awareness through therapy or workshops or you know meditation or a variety of other kind of contemplative practices all of those can actually i think help you be better at understanding humans in the workplace yeah i think so too and you know one thing that uh, i also just really struck me is what when Brian Chesky was giving, you know, wrote the intro to your book, uh, the foreword, I guess, mm-hmm. I guess we call it these days officially, you know, and speaking about you, he said, he'll teach you that when you open your ears, your eyes, your ears and your heart, you'll find that everybody has a story worth hearing. Mm. And that if you're paying close enough attention, someday your story could help others write their own. Mm. Well, there you go. Yeah. I think that's, that describes me for sure. What I appreciate is, you know, hearing other people's stories too. And, you know, we are storytellers by nature. It goes way, way, way back before there was a TV or a radio or anything else. There was, there were stories and stories were told around campfires sometimes and understanding, you know, how stories help build brands and help create loyalty is I think fascinating. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> Believe in it wholeheartedly. You know, personally, like I'm, I'm freaking out about getting older. You know, you, you mm. said earlier in this interview, you're like, we're, we're ceding control to the 30 year olds. And I think my heart dropped like down into my, my shoes. Yeah. Uh, you know, what advice do you have someone like in their forties, like who's scared of growing older? I mean, for all the reasons you mentioned in the book, ageism being thought of as finished and not rel- like, no, it, dri- it drives me crazy that like I'm losing my relevance to pop culture and the general like zeitgeist. Like, like what? What recommendations do you have for for someone like me? Well, here's one great piece of news is that there have been a bunch of studies done over the past couple decades that have shown that there is a U-curve of happiness. 
and what the, at the, uh, if you want people to understand this further, there's a book by, um, totally spacing on his name right now, but it's called the happiness curve, Jonathan Rausch. So the U curve of happiness shows that generally speaking, people go on a decline of life satisfaction and happiness from age 25 to 45, between 45 and 50. There's a, it, frankly, it's a midlife crisis. It's a variety of things. It doesn't have to be just during that five years. It can be before or after. But it's a period where you sort of have to reset your expectations. And then, interestingly, in your 50s, you tend to be happier than your 40s. And interestingly, in your 60s, you're happier than your 50s. And in your 70s, you're happier than your 60s. That's true across the world. So there are a lot of reasons for that. I can't, we don't have time to go through all of them. and And that book, The Happiness Curve, speaks to a lot of it. But I think what's free, you know, important to, for people to hear here is that the social narrative, which is you, you know you hit your midlife crisis and then it's all downhill from there, is not actually accurate. I mean, it may be accurate in terms of your body, it may be accurate in terms of your memory, it may be accurate in terms of a lot of things. But in terms of your level of contentment and satisfaction with life and happiness, it's actually not true. And when it comes to actually even your brain, yes, it is true that our brain isn't as quick as it was. Uh, when it was younger, nor is our memory as good. But one of the things a lot of people don't know about is the aging brain, the mature brain, actually is better at doing left brain, right brain tango as it gets older. What does that mean? It means it can actually, you can shift from the left brain to the right brain, from logical to lyrical very quickly. And the fact that you can do that means you can actually think more holistically, more systemically. Um, it means you can connect the dots. How is that valuable? Well, in a company like Airbnb, for example, which was full of young people with really focused, great ideas of what they want to do, but needed some kind of like over, overriding, almost uh, 30,000 feet in the air kind of connecting of the dots and some editing function of like, we can only do so many things at one time. That was part of my role. And that's part of the reason why Brian added the titles and strategy. I was, usually, I was originally just head of global hospitality. And then he said, and strategy, about three months into being there, because what he saw was like, Chip is really good at sort of thinking strategically and holistically, um, even though I have zero background in strategy. So I guess there's a lot to be said for people in their, as they get older. Uh, but there's also, we, you know, part of the reason I'm on this kick, giving speeches and doing all of this is because ageism is the last socially acceptable form of bias in the workplace. And I do want to do everything I can to help people to understand that, uh, you know, we should look at uh, people from different generations as someone who can teach us something. Yeah, and and I think that's huge, and you know that's certainly you know a, a deep seated fear of mine as 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 I continue to age, and so I, th- I think you're doing great work around that. In addition to the book, where can people find out more about what you're doing with the Modern Elder Movement? So you can uh, go to my website chipconley.com, c o n l e y, and what you'll see there is there's three components to the website. There's the chipconley.com part of the website. There's the wisdom at work. Part of the site, which is my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And then there's the Modern Elder Academy part of the site, which actually introduces you to our three-acre campus down in uh, southern the southern Baja Peninsula. Uh, and it's been great. It's been just amazing to see. We've had people from all over the world come there to actually sort of repurpose themselves and, and rethink what you know getting older means. The average age is about 52. Awesome. Awesome. And we asked this question of, of everybody on the show as we, as we close out. Uh, if the 20-year-old you ran into you today, what would he say? <laughs> Chip, you're my modern elder. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, maybe so. I, or Chip, I, I think there's something I can learn from you. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot he, he could learn from. Let me ask you one more thing. You know, there's a, a quote uh, in your book, Peak, uh, that I just love. I'm going to read it and, and I want to see what it means to you. A musician must make music, an artist must paint, a poet must write if he is to be ultimately at peace with himself. What a man can be, he must be, this need we call self-actualization. It refers to a man's desire for self-fulfillment, namely to the tendency for him to become actually in what he is potentially, to become everything one is capable of becoming. What does that quote mean to you? Well, it's Abe Maslow and... um First of all, you know, in, in, from a gender perspective, it could be men or women. So he, he was speaking in the 1960s when he wrote that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Good clarification. <laughs> I just want to make sure everybody knows. So no one's thinking, okay, this is just about men. Um, you know, I think the, the main point there is to say, hey, 
there's a reason you're here on earth. Um, there's a beautiful Socrates quote from long ago, which is the purpose of life is uh, the meaning of life is to find your purpose. And the purpose of life is to give it away. And so the idea that there, there's something you're supposed to be doing on this word earth, the actualization, actualization of your potential. And then once you actually find that you give it away. And that's for me been giving it away in the form of books now giving it in the way, uh, in the form of a modern elder Academy. So listen, that's the ultimate in self-actualization when you create a legacy and you're giving it to someone else. And that's Chip Conley. While writing Wisdom at Work, Chip was inspired to build the world's first midlife wisdom school, the Modern Elder Academy, with a three-acre oceanfront campus in Baja, California, Sur, Mexico. Chip, is an active mentor to six young CEO founders in the hospitality and tech world, and he serves on the boards of Burning Man Project, Encore.org, and the advisory board for the Stanford Center for Longevity. And he got me thinking about our own company name, Wild Story. That sure sounds like a mission statement in the name to me. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 